That was wonderful music all around. If you have a Bible, please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll be pausing our study of Luke this week and next week to focus on the incarnation and the coming of Christ, what that means to us. As a culture, we, we pause to celebrate Christmas and that can mean so many different things. And like all signs and observances, how you fill them, what content, what understanding you bring to that tree, to the manger, means everything. There are four gospel accounts. There's only one gospel. In the first instance, the gospel was not the gospel of John, but according to John, and according to Matthew, and according to Mark. And as the four evangelists lay out their gospel, according to their account, three of the four begin with a prologue, begin with events um, leading up to Christ's birth. We spent a few months in the first two chapters of Luke, which give the uh, birth announcements. Matthew as well um, has, has pre-data. Mark, Mark kind of hits the ground running. Mark is just sprinting for the cross. Everything is immediately, immediately, immediately. And John's gospel, written last, shows an awareness of the other three. And he begins in a very interesting place. And I, what we're going to try to do is in the next um, two weeks, this, this week and next week, work through John's prologue, um, verses 1 through 18. I'd like to begin by reading them, and then with what little time we have um, to make some thoughts and observations about them. So let's begin by reading John chapter 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And thus begins John's gospel. This is his prologue or first word. 
what's striking is that John's gospel begins very similar to another book of the Bible, doesn't it? In the beginning. And of course, we're all thinking of what other book of the Bible? Genesis, right? So John, right out of the gate, is echoing the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Genesis. And what we're getting is the creation account from another vantage point. Not that there's any inaccuracy in Genesis 1, but John wants us to know before we get to the baby in the manger, before we get to the word becoming flesh, before we get to Jesus meek and lowly, who this one is to whom we have to do. Who who is this baby in the manger? I think one of the reasons why um, Christmas is so popular, the images of the child in the manger are so popular in our culture, is there's nothing threatening about a baby. There's nothing intimidating. Baby is weak. Baby is helpless. Baby needs help. And so this baby in this manger, this Middle Eastern couple, gathered with shepherds around them, it's heartwarming and it's safe. It's not threatening. And John begins his account echoing the literary style of Genesis, in part to let us know that this is important. This is epochal. As big of a deal as Genesis 1 was in the creation account by God, so is what he is about to write equally important. In fact, John will continue to echo themes from Genesis. We get from creation to, from from in the beginning to creation to light to a week of Jesus' life to John chapter 2, a wedding He's he's echoing the themes of Genesis. And what we learn in this prologue is a new title for Jesus. John's gospel is filled with many titles. In fact, we find the I am statements in John's gospel. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door and the bread of life. Come down from heaven. But John begins his gospel with a unique title for Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Not really much antecedent in the Old Testament for that. And I think that, again, is intentional. There's internal evidence that shows that John expects his readers have heard this account before. John expects his readers are familiar with the basic plot events of the story, and he begins his gospel not with a familiar title of the Messiah, or the Son of Man, or the Son of God, but with the Word. And that is significant. As we are to understand who this baby is, who Jesus is, John begins by calling him the Word. It's clear that the Word is Jesus. Just jump to verse 14. It makes it crystal clear. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what what is the import of defining Jesus as the Word? Well, in brief, it's this. God's full, complete, self Communication and expression to man is Jesus. We get that in the last verse of this prologue, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, literally exegeted him, translated him. The beginning of Hebrews, um, you don't need to turn there, but the beginning of Hebrews says this. Long ago, and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Do you get the idea that Jesus is the revelation? Jesus is the communication. 
whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the world by the power of his word. One of the themes we'll look at next week is this notion that no one has seen God at any time. And it's hearkening back to Exodus, where Moses goes up on the mountain and says to the Lord, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory and live. And yet, through this revelation of God, now man can draw near to God. Now John can say, we have seen the glory of the word. Moses couldn't see God's glory. Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock. The word became flesh. We have seen his glory. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. You want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. You want to learn who the God who made everything is, you look to Jesus. And we find that the Word is both God and distinct from God. In this amazing first sentence, in the beginning was the Word. As far back as you can go, there's Jesus being. As one of my professors used to say, ising. He's he's back there being. You can't get behind that. He's not created as the next few verses will make clear. As far back as you go, Jesus is, and he is with God, which is to say he's distinct from the Father, yet he is God. And here we get the, the very beginnings of, of the teachings of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, a God who is one and yet exists in three simultaneous persons. The Word is God's fellow. He's with God face to face. He is himself God. He was with God in the beginning with God, verse 2. So the word is God's self-expression. It's, it's the one who reveals the nature of the Father. And he is God, and he's distinct from God. And then in verse 3, picking back up this creation theme, all things were made through him. This is another tie-in. If you remember back in Genesis, Moses not only tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, but he tells us how God created the heavens and the earth. And God did not cast a spell. He did not wave a wand. He did not invoke a ritual. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke. And this one who is the word of God, we are told, was the agent in creation. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, which is a slightly redundant way to make the point emphatically, everything. When John says everything was made by the word, he means literally everything, every molecule, every atom, every quark in the universe was made by the word of God, which means that he is the author of all things. And being the author of something grants you authority over things. We we get this. If you make something, if you work, and by the sweat of your brow, you craft and create something, it is yours. Well, here we learn the word made absolutely everything in the universe. Everything. Which means then he has authority over absolutely everything. Who is this baby in the manger? This baby in the manger is God's self-revelation to us. Who is this baby in the manger? He is God and God's fellow. Who is this baby in the manger? The author of absolutely everything. This is what's so wondrous, that there's a a child still covered in the vernix, in the birth, wrapped in swaddling clothes, 
who is God and the maker of all things. That is what is wondrous. But we don't just stop there. He's God's self-expression. He is God. He's the creator of all things. But in verse 4, we learn that he is the source of life and light. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The darkness, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Not only is he God and God's self-expression, not only is he the one who created all things, but he is the source of life. If you're alive here today, if you can hear me, you are, then your life is, is a gift of the word of God. It is upheld by the word of God, your very being. You owe it to him, this baby in the manger. And then he goes on to say this life was light. And in John's gospel, light, as we'll see in a few moments, is a moral category. The world is a dark place, not because at portions of the day the sun doesn't shine on it, but rather because it is a sinful place. And the life was light, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or comprehended it. There's a, there's a conflict between light and darkness. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of light. This baby in the manger is the source of life and light. That conflict will become clear in a few verses. And then John takes an excursus to talk about John. And we usually call him John the Baptist, but in, in John's gospel, he's John the witness or John the martyr, John the testifier. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And we'll set that aside for the moment and pick back up about this light, this word, this maker and creator. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So this one who was in the beginning with God and was God, this one who is the word, creative agent in creation, the one who made absolutely all things, this one who is the source of life and light now enters into our mode of being. He enters into the world. We talk sometimes about God's transcendence, and when we speak of that, we mean God's difference from us. He is above and beyond us. A God that you or I could fully comprehend is too small of a God. God is greater than us. But the difficulty with God's transcendence is how then do you reach? How do you communicate with? How do you relate with a God who is wholly other? And so the doctrine of God's imminence is seen here. God is transcendent. He is above and beyond us, but here he condescends himself, and he enters into our being. Again, this is the wonder of Christmas, that God is with man. He has come to us. He has made his dwelling place with us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. And verse 9 should be the best possible news, except it sets up the tragedy of verse 10. He was in the world, and then he repeats what he said, make his point clear, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then even more tragic, that's a general statement of the world. The world which owes him its allegiance, its very being, its existence, didn't know him. 
refused to recognize him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. Well, this gets even worse before it gets better. He came into the world. He made the world. The world owes him everything. The world didn't recognize him. Then he comes to his own special, peculiar people, the people of Israel, the Jews, who'd been given the oracles of God, who'd been given scripture, who, who were given the signs and the prophecies to recognize their Messiah. And the tragedy of the incarnation is that this one who is life and light, this one who is God and God's fellow, this one who is the author of all things, who is the expression of God, the revelation of God, he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. And that, that is the tragedy. What we're going to see is there, there are two types of people, those who receive Jesus and those who do not. Those people who are at peace with God and those people who are not. And in this tragic moment in verse 12 and 11, I mean, John has to introduce the good news. He's already hinted at it before in verse 7 about how John came to bear witness that all might believe. But here, in contrast to Israel's rejection, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the will of not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in these last few verses, we have tragedy and we have gospel. The tragedy, the nation of Israel, his own people, rather than receive him, called for his crucifixion, nailed him to a tree, and murdered him. And in contrast to that, John breaks from this narrative of the history to speak to the reader, to speak to you and me. This is what happened, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, the offer then of the gospel, why, why we get so excited at Christmas time and Easter is because God has come into our existence. He has taken on flesh. The word of God has come and dwelt with us. He has tabernacled with us. He has lived the life we could not live sinlessly. And he goes and is rejected by his own creation, nailed to a tree. And on the cross, Jesus dies and pays a penalty for our sins. And yet if we will receive him, if we'll believe in him, according to this passage, we can escape the fate of condemnation, but we can be forgiven. We can actually be adopted into God's family, which, which raises the, the critically important question of what does that mean to receive Jesus, to, to believe in Jesus' name? And turn, if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 2. I'm going to look at chapter 3 briefly as we try to answer that question. And, and the reason I belabor this point is there is such a spectrum of honoring and acceptance of Jesus in our world today, just as there was in Jesus' day. You see signs everywhere, Merry Christmas. At some minimal, minimal level, most of your countrymen will tip the hat, give some sort of recognition to Christ. After all, they speak of Christmas or Christ Mass. Jesus was in Jerusalem. He performed uh, miracles. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many 
believed in his name. That's the exact expression used in verse uh, 12. For those who believed in his name. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So apparently in John's gospel, there's believing in Jesus and there's believing in Jesus. We're told in verse 12 of chapter 1 that to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here are some people who believed in his name and Jesus distances himself from them. In fact, if you keep reading, and and we'll just move quickly, really this is setting up Nicodemus, who shows up, verse 1, now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who ruled with the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's a man who saw signs. He's coming to Jesus, giving him the honorary title of Rabbi. And yet we learn a little later, Nicodemus is not now a believer. Look at verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here's a man who saw some signs, believes something about Jesus, but is not saved. You keep reading in John 3, this becomes more clear as John reverts back to the language of light and darkness. And I'm belaboring this point with a few moments I have just because it's so critical. You're here which means to some degree you recognize something about Jesus. Either that or your relatives are very influential. Um, I get it. So, so you're probably not a blasphemer of Christ. You're probably not someone who identifies yourself as his enemy. In some sense, you give him some level of recognition, just like Nicodemus did. Just like the Jews of Jesus' day did. His own didn't receive him. Yet if you keep reading in John's gospel, at one point they want to take him by force and make him king. Apparently you can want to make Jesus your geopolitical king and still not receive him. Great crowds followed him. Said Hosanna as he came down the road on Palm Sunday. John leaves us in, in no confusion over what he means when he talks about believing and receiving. Even in English, receiving kind of an active and a passive sense. The UPS guy comes, and this time of the year, packages are delivered, and and they knock on the door, and you receive the package. That's pretty passive. Then you can go to a wedding reception. You can ask somebody, what type of reception do they give you? And that's, I think, the sense in which John is speaking about Israel receiving Jesus. What reception do they give him? Well, they would receive him as a prophet. The Pharisees would receive him as a rabbi. And a miracle worker, someone sent from God, that's good. That's good. As far as it goes, it's not enough. There's all sorts of people in Jesus' day who'd accept him as a moral teacher. Someone who spoke for God. Someone who had good teachings, who was wise, who spoke rightly, who handled God's word well. That they could deal with. Why did Israel reject their Messiah and why today do people stay in darkness? John tells us at the end of the Nicodemus encounter. Verse 19. Well, let's start at verse 16. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, there is the gospel in all of its simplicity. You don't have to perish because you can believe in Jesus. You can receive the Son of God. But John goes on to help give some clarity to what he means. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So again, there's two types of people, receivers, non-receivers, believers, and those who are condemned. Look at verse 19 now. And this is the judgment, or this is the conclusion. And I think what John is doing is telling us the conclusion of the Nicodemus encounter. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, which is a direct link back to chapter 1, verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. We're picking back up our theme from the prologue. Light has come into the world. Okay, so I think we're on the right track. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why, why did Israel reject their Messiah when light came into the world? Because they loved darkness. Why do people today reject Jesus as the Messiah, not receive him? They love darkness. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The reason Israel did not receive their Messiah, was not because of theological confusion, was not because they missed the signs. Make no mistake, John's telling us at the very beginning, he came to his own, his own did not receive him, and the reason they did not receive him, the reason people in all times and all places do not receive him is they love their sin, they love the darkness, and so they don't come to the light. You see, the real, the real dilemma is, what do you want to be the God of your life? Will you recognize Jesus as the author of life, the creator, the one who is God? Will you interact with him that way? You can't just have the baby in the manger. The godness, the creatorness, to create a word, comes with him. You can't separate them. John starts with the identity of the word before he gets to the incarnation of the word. And so in all times and in all places, our inner struggle, our love for self and for sin and for doing things our own way and directing our own life and being autonomous and doing what we please is put in direct odds and contrast with coming to Christ and receiving him. This becomes perfectly clear at the end of chapter 3. If you just read down a little further, look at uh, verse 35 and 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, so John has used a number of expressions, receiving, believing, and even here obeying. What he's getting at is receiving Jesus, is receiving him for who he is. John, John has begun by telling us Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the source of light and life. Will you receive him as such? And if your answer is, no, I'll just receive him as a good teacher, then you aren't receiving him. You're with the nation of Israel and those who rejected him. Are you willing to follow and obey him? Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. These are the categories we're putting things in. And knowing this only elevates the importance of this because clearly, back in John 1, Israel's rejection of the Messiah makes them that much more worthy of judgment. They should have known better. 
They were his own special people, and they rejected him. So we turn our attention to this baby in the manger. We turn our attention to God's love and goodwill towards men this time of the year, and that's all wonderfully true. But turn your attention also to your own heart, your own relationship to this one, and understand you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't receive him simply as a good teacher, as a rabbi. Nicodemus would do that. You can't just receive him as a life coach. He is God, the author of life, the creator of all things, and your Lord, or you're playing for the other team. That's the way John opens his gospel. He, he helps us interpret what we're about to see in these opening 18 verses. We'll look at this more next week. But for now, I just want to challenge you. God has given this gift, and his will is that you would receive his son. Receive him as who he is. Receive him as the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Receive him not simply as the meek and lowly baby in the cradle, but as the, the Lord as shown in John's, God, in John's revelation as the Lord of glory. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and we'll have our closing song. Lord God, you have come to us. You have not left us. You have entered into time and space. You've taken on flesh. You have dwelt among us. You have lived life alongside of us. You understand what it's like to live in this dark, difficult world. You care. You have borne our burdens, suffered our afflictions. Oh, Lord God, we pray that unlike the world, you would give us hearts to receive you truly as you are that we would not love the darkness, but that we would run to the light, that we would delight in becoming your children, living as your children and subjects. Lord God, let this Christmas truly be the celebration of the entering into this world of God of very God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing.